Hello and welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on the Linux and open source world. This is episode 69, recorded on September 2nd, 2018. I'm Joe. And I'm Wes. Hello Wes, thank you very much for standing in for Chris while he's off sick. We've got a lot to get through today, so let's start with a huge release from the UbiPorts team, Ubuntu Touch OTA 4. It's been a long, difficult eight months of work, but it's finally here. You might be wondering, why does this matter? Well, if you ask the project, this is really a fresh start. This is where they can build off a new, solid foundation, and that foundation is Ubuntu 16.04. Yeah, they say that it's the official starting point of the project because really, when Canonical dropped the project just over a year ago, a year and a half ago at this point, it was based on 15.04, which wasn't really supported anymore. And so they've been playing catch-up, trying to get it up to 16.04, because all the plans that they have are based on it first getting to 16.04, which is a supported code base, at least for another few years, which means they can stop worrying about the upstream stuff, at least for the time being, and concentrate on all of the cool new features that they want to add, things like Anbox. And so that's why this makes it so important. And It's great to see that they finally got this out. I've been waiting for it for a long, long time, and it's pretty good. I've tried it out on a Nexus 5, and it seems pretty solid. They do mention a couple of bugs with the camera that they're still working on, and the main browser has a few issues, and so they recommend that you try a different one. But um, it's a good base, and this is, as far as I'm concerned, the only hope, really, apart from things like Lineage, the only hope for a free and open source Linux-based mobile operating system. It does seem like there are a number of just small, you know, ease of life improvements in this one. I noticed a big one was the addition of wake lock support. And if you're going to be using this all day as your real phone, you probably want all the battery life you can get. Yeah, that's something that previous versions really suffered from. Even if you just turned Wi-Fi off, put it on airplane mode, turned the screen off, left it on your desk... After a day or so, the battery was just dead. Whereas with Android, I mean, I've got some devices that I do that with, and I come back a month later, and they're down like 5 6%. That's one of those features you just have to have, especially if we want to play outside the hobbyist space and make this something anyone could use. Well, I think that is the ultimate goal, but they just had to get here first. And I've been listening to their Q&As every couple of weeks for the past year or so. And I've just seen the development, you know, well, heard about the development week in, week out, and it's been getting closer and closer. And it must be a huge relief for them to get here. And I just want to see what they're going to do next. Definitely a project milestone. Now, if you are looking to upgrade right away, you might find some ABI compatibility issues, but they also have a handy upgrade wizard that will try and upgrade any apps that do have a new 1604 base automatically. It's very easy to install as well. They've got their GUI installer, which I think they've got a Snap, an app image, and a Deb for. I used the app image. I'd used that before. Again, worked flawlessly. Got it installed on my Nexus 5 straight away. Very straightforward. So if you've been waiting to try this out, you can pick up a Nexus 5 or some of the other support devices pretty cheaply on eBay or Craigslist or Gumtree or whatever. I would say now is the time. Well, speaking of new and exciting software releases, this past week also saw the release of Linux Mint Debian Edition version 3, Cindy. Yeah, this is based on Debian Stretch, and this time there's only a Cinnamon version. They've dropped the Mate version, which kind of makes sense if you want to streamline your development resources. 
But why we're talking about this is I kind of thought LMDE was dead because the last version was released in April 2015. That was uh, Linux Mint Debian Edition 2. And it had a few updates, but we haven't really heard that much about it. And suddenly, here we are. Yes, we've seen some betas, and you know, I kind of knew this was coming, but it is proof positive that Clem and the team are serious about being based on Debian, at least having that option, that backup plan that we always talked about. And here we are. And I've tried it out, albeit not extensively, but it seems to work pretty well. It's just cinnamon on top of Debian, as far as I can see. Yeah, it is structured just a, a little bit different than the standard Linux Mint, especially since LMD doesn't have point releases. So every so often, as you just said, we'll see big upgrades to the underlying Debian edition. And then all the rest of the time, new Linux Mint features will just go right in. Maybe it was unfair for me to say that it's just Cinnamon on top of Debian because there is a lot of Mint stuff in there. Things like the backup tool, which is really useful. And they have forked these apps, haven't they? And they have made it their own, like it or not. There's no doubting that. They have put their stamp on this thing. And I think that it's a bit of an acquired taste. It seems to be very popular with some people, but then I hear a bit of scorn poured on it from other people. I mean, I remember they had the security snafu. Uh, well, actually, that must be a few years ago now. Um, but they have slowly started to improve stuff like that, haven't they? They're definitely putting the time in. Uh, it, it seems like a passion project that really has some good intentions, but doesn't always have time or maybe just the inclination to do what we might call the right things. You know, a couple of years ago, they did have that big breach where some infected ISOs were served up. Now, these days, they do host their GPG signatures and their checksums on another site, which is great, but it is still pretty difficult. You have to jump through four or five levels of links just to get those files. So you can tell that maybe new user ease, they do a good job of having a lot of documentation just about the common issues new users will have. Maybe not a distro for someone a little more experienced and has a little more taste. Well, you're saying that people who use it have got no taste. You're going to get some hate mail about that, I think. You're probably right. <laughs> okay, well, uh, we better move on. Mozilla have been up to a couple of good things lately. First of all, they have published user data, and they're basing this user data from a representative 10% sample from the release, beta, ESR, and other channels. And they're properly anonymizing this data, and they're going to publish it weekly, which is pretty impressive. This is definitely a case of Mozilla putting their data where their mouth has been. It's nice to see this level of transparency, and it does seem like they've had an eye to trying to give good general high-level information about how Firefox is actually used. So it started off a couple years ago with just a hardware report, and now you're getting a lot more information, things like the number of active clients in the past 365 days in an effort to try to round out seasonal effects. And then, of course, a lot more detailed things that can be broken down by operating system as well as top 10 countries. It was interesting to see how active the users were in each country because it's one thing to have the browser open, but to actually be interacting with it and how many hours per day. And, um, well, all I can say is USA number one. We always are. <laughs> But unfortunately, Linux, well, I don't know, is this unfortunate? Linux kind of around about 3%-ish, 25 to 3%. It's kind of to be expected, isn't it? Most of it's Windows 7 and Windows 10. Yeah, I, I would like to hope that is just an indication of maybe one, 
that Firefox has some good success even in the proprietary operating system world. And two, that as much as we like to think we represent ourselves well, well, there's just not that many Linux users out there. But you would think that Linux users would be more likely to use a free software browser than Chrome. Although I suppose a lot of Linux users are pragmatic, and if websites don't load properly in Firefox, they're just going to fire up Chrome. That is probably part of it. I think, too, there's a lot of applications that maybe have some desktop equivalents in the Windows or Mac world that are relegated to perhaps web apps that work better in Chrome. Yeah, that's true. But unfortunately, they didn't publish any data from the mobile version of Firefox, but they do hope to do that at some point soon. That would be interesting, although I fear that may be even more depressing (laughs) for Linux users at least. It might be. I will say, Joe, that I am a Firefox on mobile user myself. I've been really impressed with just its general usefulness. It has a really nice save for later feature. And their mobile reading is, I think, among the best. Is it better than Chrome on Android for that, though? Because Chrome's got a fairly good, um, you know, kind of mobile view um, option. You know, it really does, but uh, I find that Firefox just, it, it works better on a wider array of sites, especially, you know, doing show research, etc. on uh, sometimes some rather ad-filled websites. Between Firefox and Brave, these days, uh, I don't even need Chrome on Android. Ads on mobile? You need to get Adaway installed. You need to get your phone routed, get Adaway done, get your host file updated regularly. No more ads, Wes. We can't all be as cool as you, Joe. <laughs> That's true. Well, another thing Firefox is going to start doing is blocking tracking. Pretty much wholesale, really. Yeah, to start with, they've identified three sort of main areas that they'd like to target and see Firefox radically improve. And probably the most important one they're starting with is just improving page load performance. They cite some figures that 55% of the total time required to load an average website was spent just loading third-party trackers, which, hey, I don't want that slowdown. That is pretty bad. You'd think that in the days of GDPR, that would have been tightened up a little bit, but apparently not. Think before you include those JavaScript links, everybody. Yeah, yeah, the Facebook buttons and all that. Exactly. And they also want to cut down on cross-site tracking, don't they? Yeah, they make a pretty strong analogy here that, you know, in the physical world, as you're walking from store to store and shopping around, you really don't expect people to be following you and spying just about on everything you look at, let alone purchase. And you know what? You should have that same privacy expectation on the web. Uh, So starting with maybe Firefox 65, if all things go well, Firefox will strip cookies and block storage access from third-party tracking content. But you can actually enable this right now in Firefox Nightly. If you go to linuxactionnews.com slash 69, you'll see a link to the blog post about this detailing how to do it. It's fairly straightforward. And I'm tempted. I'm tempted to get on the Nightly just to get this stuff going already. Because they also talk about um, blocking fingerprinting and crypto mining. It's a bit random to lump them together. But with the fingerprinting, each person's browser is potentially unique based on all sorts of things like the um, extensions you've got installed, the resolution of your screen, even things like theming. Yeah, there's really an incredible number of ways for clever and motivated people to track you on the web. I know the list of fonts you have installed can also be a big giveaway there. Mozilla's calling these quote-unquote harmful practices, and you know, I, I certainly don't want to be tracked without my consent, and I certainly don't want my browser's time and my CPU and my power bill used to mine cryptocurrency for someone's third-party website. What's particularly interesting about this is it seems like a real power play against Google and Chrome specifically, because Google 
they just can't do this with Chrome. Their, their business model depends on tracking and selling you ads based on that. So I just don't see how they could possibly implement this. And it seems like Mozilla might have the upper hand here. It really does show where the differing motivations, you know, Google wants to make a nice browser so that you have a good time on the web using their products and their, you know, and their cohorts products. Firefox and Mozilla behind them seem to be genuinely interested in an open internet that allows people to have privacy, but still engage in all the wonderful things that the internet provides. I like how they put it that, you know, some sites will still continue to want user data in exchange for content. But after these Firefox changes, they'll actually have to ask for it, which is a great change, especially for people, you know, who may not be listening to this program even, who don't really know what they're giving away when they visit all these sites. At least with after these changes, you'll have an idea of just what you're giving away in exchange for all those top 10 lists. Yeah. And I do like to bash Mozilla sometimes and say they've got loads of money and they just spend it on frivolous things. But these two stories here really show that they are a good organization. And we are really lucky to have them and people like the EFF. So I would urge you, if you've stopped using Firefox, give it another go. It has improved markedly over the last few releases. It's got faster. Now we're starting to get stuff like this coming in there. I think you have to vote with your feet, don't you? Or vote with your mouse or whatever. And uh, start using Firefox again. It's great. Well, whatever you may think of Google and their open source semi-open source browser, there's another Google open source project you probably can't stop hearing about. That's Kubernetes. And well, there's some big news in the, let's say, delicate relationship between the two. Now, a cynical person might say that they have handed off Kubernetes to the community now and said, here, have a nice $9 million donation of Google Cloud time and you know, run your project with that. But we're not interested in taking care of it anymore you know you're a community run with it but am i being too cynical there i think it's a reasonable question this is a three-year grant of nine million dollars worth of cloud credits for google cloud so we'll maybe know a little bit more about the true character after three four five years but a less cynical way to look at it is that Kubernetes is an open source project. And so, you know, anyone can go contribute it, especially if you're a company that's using it and want to feel like you have a stake. But up until now, Google has been the one deciding when a new release got cut, and they were the sole people in charge of all of the development infrastructure, the CI CD systems, the servers that hosted all the container downloads that you need to actually run the project, as well as just general stewardship of the project. As they say, they believe that all aspects of a mature open source project, including its testing and release infrastructure, should be maintained by the people developing it. So with this change, under the governance of the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, Google is now just one other company that happens to be a sponsor and isn't some weird mastermind. So in a way, this is actually better for the project then, probably. Yeah, I think it signals sort of a new phase. You know, Kubernetes has gone from just sort of something to watch to a, you know, nascent but not quite mature project to something now that runs real production business critical applications in a huge number of large-scale enterprises. And this move kind of goes along with that. There is a consortium of companies and just open source contributors involved, and now the governance structure will reflect that a little better. Well, it sounds like this change isn't going to have immediate effect. It's going to kind of be a slow transition, isn't it? So, the only thing we can do is watch and wait on this one and see exactly how it shakes out. But it sounds, from what you've said, to be overall a positive thing, I think. A sign of a maturing project with years to come.
Well, a court case that Google have been involved in, I think it's fair to describe as mature or having dragged on for far too long at this point. And that is their dispute with Oracle about Android and the various Java APIs, which may or may not have been fair use, may or may not have been copyrightable, may or may not end up costing Google the best part of $9 billion. Well, Google were very much hoping to be able to appeal the latest decision, which went against them, but that has not gone well. So they only have two options left now, either pay the money to Oracle or take it to the Supreme Court. Something tells me it's going to be the latter. I mean, there's only one way to fight Oracle, and that's with more lawyers. Yeah, when this came up last time, that's what I said, the lawyers. They're the only winners in this. They just keep getting paid for this to go backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. But it doesn't look good for Google, I don't think. There are emails basically proving that they knew they should have licensed Java when they didn't. And not many people like Oracle, I suppose not many people like Google these days, but I just don't think it's going to work out for Google. I think they are going to ultimately have to pay whether it's going to be the full $8.8 billion. We'll see. But I think they're going to have to pay something. But, I mean, that's not even that much money to Google, is it? Okay, it's a little bit to them, but it's not going to ruin them. No, it's it's definitely – I think whether or not Google has to pay money, I just sort of worry about the precedent this sets. A lot of the technology, especially the internet and Unix-based systems, have relied on open interfaces and basically open APIs that anyone could implement – Especially today where Java is still a hugely popular platform and systems that run on it are on your mobile phone, on the servers that power the apps on your mobile phone. It, it does, I think, have a worrying sense that it could stymie some of the wonderful open culture that we've been trying and maybe not succeeding to create. Well, that's a fair point and a fair worry, but I don't think that changes the facts of this case. And okay, I'm not a lawyer and all the rest of it, but I stand by it that I think this is going to end badly for Google. And I really hope that you're wrong, that it doesn't have a knock-on effect, but I fear that you may be right. Unfortunately, we just don't have a great legal tradition of understanding the implications of our decisions around technology. Yep. All right, well, let's end on a bit of a fun one. It turns out that blockchain is way older as a technology than Bitcoin. In fact, it goes all the way back to 1991. Now, Joe, I don't know about you, but when I think about blockchain, Bitcoin is what comes to my mind. And and really, I guess, just a way to have a, a database that's maintained by the network of users and secured through some sort of verifiable cryptography. But really, blockchains, insofar as they constitute just like a chronological chain of hashed data, were first invented by cryptographers Stuart Haber and Scott Stornetta way back in 1991, as you said. And well, their use cases were a lot less ambitious. Yeah, really, they just wanted to timestamp some digital documents and verify that they were authentic. It wasn't about billion-dollar ICOs and all of that for them. It was just they wanted a way to prove that these particular documents were what they were and when they were. Yeah, in in the physical world, we already have a variety of mundane ways to do that, right? You can send yourself something in a sealed envelope, or you can make a bunch of chronological entries in a secure notebook. But verifying authenticity and that no one has actually mangled a digital document, that's a lot harder. 
Yeah, so these guys started a company called Surety. I think that's how you say it. And their main product was a thing called Absolute Proof. And really, it was just a cryptographically secure seal on these digital documents. But they solved this problem of making this ledger public in a really interesting way. Instead of relying on a whole network of servers eating power, crunching a bunch of math to maintain the security and integrity of the distributed ledger, well, surety was in some ways just a bit more clever. Now, instead of uploading any sensitive consumer information or posting it publicly, instead, surety would create a unique hash of all the new seals added to its database every week, and then they publish that hash value in the New York Times. Yeah, in the classified section, which must have been super cheap, and they've been doing that every week since the 90s. Yeah, if you go look and find it, you'll see right under notices and lost and found some just strange-looking series of digits and numbers, which you'll probably recognize as a cryptographic hash. And talk about distributed, even now they still have a print circulation of over half a million copies per edition, which means that it would be extremely difficult to tamper with those. There's just too many of them. Yeah, really, about the only way to uh, invalidate the the claims that they've published would be to make a fake paper with fake hashes and be able to have a wider distribution. I don't know about you, Joe, but I just don't have that much paper. Yeah, not to mention all the ink. But come on, newspapers are old technology. Surely you want to keep up with all the new stuff. And the best way to do that is go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. And don't forget you can support the whole network at the Patreon page, patreon.com slash jupitersignal. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Wes Payne. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.